1: Hey there, I'm Brittany Luce, a longtime documentary superfan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod.
2: And I'm Ronald Young Jr. I'm an audio producer and live storyteller, film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour.
1: And we're popping into the Allen vs. Faro podcast feed to bring you an episode of a new HBO podcast that we host called HBO Docs Club.
2: On each episode, we take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO Documentary Films catalog. We'll get updates on the stories, talk with the filmmakers behind each feature documentary, as well as experts who help us make sense of what we've seen.
1: This season, we'll be watching stories about Harlem's legendary theater, big political scandals, and unsolved child
2: murders. And the episode we're bringing you today is about Mommy Dead and Dearest, the documentary about the 2015 murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by her daughter, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, and Gypsy's boyfriend, Nicholas Godejah.
1: You can watch it right now on HBO Max. And be sure to subscribe to HBO Docs Club wherever you get your podcasts so you can know what we're watching next.
2: Take a listen to the HBO Docs Club episode on Mommy Dead and Dearest. A great documentary. Makes us question everything. Everything. The things that we know and the things we think we know. But we're actually completely wrong about. This is the beginning
3: of my last act. In order to know how to go forward, I'm going to have to know where I've been.
2: The public figures we love. And love to hate. The issues that we must face as a society. Huge cultural moments. I mean, as a black man, you're born into this world with PTSD. Things you can't unsee.
1: The aftermath is worse than the actual levees breaking. Someone who's different from us, but also not that different from us.
2: Somebody offers you a million dollars, you're gonna take it.
1: Documentaries show us the worst
2: and the best of what, what human, human beings, beings are, are capable of. of. Did you kill your mom?
3: No, no, sir. Did you help? No, sir.
2: Nicholas, kill your mom.
3: No, sir.
1: Welcome to HBO Docs Club, where we deep dive into the true stories that captivate our imagination. I'm Brittany Luce, longtime documentary super fan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod.
2: And I'm Ronald Young Jr., an audio producer and live storyteller, a film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. During each episode, we'll take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO Documentary Films catalog. Sometimes they'll be from our recent past, other times they'll be brand new. But they'll all inevitably teach us something about the human condition.
1: So, this week's documentary is the 2017 film Mommy, Dead and Dearest. It's about the 2015 murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by her daughter, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, and Gypsy's boyfriend, Nicholas Godijohn, directed by Aaron Lee Carr.
4: Do you think 10 years in jail is better than 10 years of living the way that you had to live? Yes, it is.
3: I need to start over like I'm newly born.
2: Later in this episode, we sit down with the film's director, Aaron Lee Carr, and we talk with an expert on medical abuse in children who will answer all of our questions about the toxic dynamic between Gypsy and Dee Dee that is at the heart of this story. All right, let's recap some of the major events of the documentary. So the case kicks off with the discovery of a really grisly murder in Springfield, Missouri. Dee Dee Blanchard, she's found dead, and her disabled wheelchair-bound daughter Gypsy Rose is nowhere to be found. Can't find her, no trace. The police follow a lead all the way to Wisconsin and a graphic Facebook status stating that bitch is dead.
1: Yeah, so what nobody saw coming is that Gypsy conspired with her then-boyfriend, Nicholas Godejohn, to kill her mother. The obvious question is, why did Gypsy want her mother dead? And the not-so-obvious answer is Munchausen by proxy syndrome. And you might be wondering, what is Munchausen by proxy? Well, it's a psychological disorder where caregivers deliberately make up illnesses about, or cause injury to, in some cases, someone under their care.
2: Everyone thought that Dee Dee was a model parent, but inside the privacy of her home, Gypsy is constantly being abused. Her real age was kept from her. She was on multiple medications. She had a feeding tube put in, and she was made to believe that she needed a wheelchair when she had the physical ability to walk. She could walk. Wild. The story has so many twists and turns. We got layers here. Layers. I want to hear from you. What are your overall impressions of the film? You know, it was a well-made movie. It's a well-made documentary. Yeah. And I think director Aaron Lee Carr, who you'll hear from later in this episode, the way in which she peels back layer after layer after layer, it just draws you in. And I think that setup was part of what made this story so effective. Because even on his face, I would have read about it. But the way she tells the story, just very effective storytelling.
1: It's so effective. And I think a big part of that is this was a very salacious case when it came out. Mm -hmm. I didn't follow it too much because it felt kind of tabloid and obviously it's quite gruesome. Mm -hmm. And I know many people are really into that, but actually I'm not typically a true crime kind of gal. Yeah. But I live with somebody who is. And I didn't really pay attention to the case when it came out in 2015. What I was the most stunned by when watching the documentary, speaking to the power of the storytelling and the style that the director went with, it, didn't feel tabloidy, Mm. even though there were a lot of very personal details and there was the BDSM angle and there were all of these text messages and Facebook posts, yeah things that can make a story feel very gossipy and splashy. um, They were also used with really great, strong interviews uh, with people who really knew some aspect of the story really well, whether that be Michelle Dean, the journalist who wrote the first big long form piece about the case.
2: Yeah. Featured heavily in this documentary.
1: Yeah, she's featured heavily in this documentary for good reason. But also people who actually knew Dee Dee and Gypsy in real life.
2: You know, we start with a murder. The cops come out and they say, there's a murder. They show you scenes from the crime scene and it -hmm. takes you through all of those. And then the chief of police who's in charge of the investigation then says, This is an ongoing investigation. And I want to start off with saying, things are not always as they appear. Which is really the theme of this entire movie, which is just things are not as they seem. And with every layer that is peeled back from this film, it's just more and more dark, but also more intriguing as the story continues.
1: Absolutely. I think things are not as they seem is definitely, I think, the point of the documentary, but also what an understatement. Absolutely. The documentary for me is really like, it's bisected. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are two stories and then right in the middle, it kind of turns on a dime where in the first half of the documentary, we're learning about the ways in which Gypsy was abused by her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, and really seeing just how much this young woman had to put up with. Yeah. Just the level of deception, not just toward Gypsy, but also toward other people and the general public. Yeah. Just seeing how much her mother benefited from projecting this perfect mother image out into the world and what it cost Dee Dee. Essentially, the smooth first two decades of her life in in any real sense. You get really swept up in the story and understanding, like, the level of pressure lies that, that, that Gypsy was living with.
4: What illnesses did your mom say that you had? Asthma,
3: epilepsy, um, hearing impaired, vision impaired, fed with a feeding tube, paralyzed from the waist down, slow, so uh, retardation, and among other things, I just can't remember them.
1: <laughs> of course, you learned at the beginning of the documentary about the murder, yeah. that Dee Dee Blanchard was murdered by Gypsy. And the first half of the movie, you're like, yeah, I understand why that happened. Yeah. What's interesting is that in the second half is like when you really get into the nasty bits of exactly how Dee Dee ended up dead. And I don't think that for me, it changed my opinion of how much Gypsy had been through. Mm -hmm. But I appreciated that the film did not shy away from the fact that Gypsy lived through something horrific and she also did something horrific.
3: Just kind of at that point where you're like, I'm angry at the world, and this is unfair. Why couldn't anybody figure this out before it got this bad?
2: So for me, Watching Gypsy Rose's story, it's hard for me to unsympathize with her no matter what mm-hmm. she does next because I think the movie starts off, we have this murder, and then all these interviews in which people are saying, I'm surprised that she was able to walk. That was really disturbing that she, she's she been able to walk this whole time, oh that this whole thing was an act and all that, and they start teaching you about what the theater was behind her life like that it was all you know kind of contrived it was made up yeah and that her mother was making her sick and then the abuse comes in her mother is also abusing her she's making her sick she's reaping all the benefits of this so it's one large scam and like you said the family is like we don't even like Dee blanchard like that like we we cast her out of her family we later got the word that gypsy was fine and she was by her boyfriend's house we're like she killed her mom. She finally did it. She couldn't take it anymore, you know? She finally just said, fuck it all. I'm killing this bitch.
4: Do you think she got what she deserved?
0: According yes. to, to Yeah, she Yeah. She got what she deserved.
1: They hate her. They said they could flush her ashes
2: down the toilet. Let's be clear. Uh, yes.
0: Even in death,
2: they're like, get her out of here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So all of that together. It feels like the reaction to that, I felt unsurprised that she was dead. Mm. And it is, you know, to put it at the top of the documentary, that is serious. It's like, ooh, how did this murder happen? But when you get to the why, I'm just like, oh, yeah. Is anyone surprised that she rose up and killed this woman? The second or third time that I watched it, I started to see, okay, she did have to enact a plan to do this. Yes. It was premeditated. It was premeditated. Yeah, and I think that's what she goes to prison for, is that like, yo, you plotted this whole thing. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, well, what else was she supposed to do? She had nothing else to do. Her mother kept her under her control all the time. At that point, I mean, can you really blame someone for plotting to try to get out of the grips of an oppressor? Yeah. The murder just doesn't wash over me. The way the years of abuse, Munchausen's by proxy, which is, you know, a big role in this movie. Yeah. That hit me harder than the actual murder did. And I guess I... I'm saying it's okay to murder sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's obviously the court of law and the idea of locking someone away or mm-hmm. sentencing them to death is something that it's an everyday occurrence in this country. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to sound woo-woo. Bring it. But there is a very direct cosmic justice that yeah. was served to Didi. The film made me think a lot about the relationship between parent and child, specifically in this instance between mother and daughter. Yeah. And how, you know, in the right hands, a parent is going to be somebody who you can trust 100%, -hmm. who's always going to have your back, who's going to protect you from the outside world. Who's not going to lie to you. Who's going to have guardrails for you while you develop your own identity. And what Didi did to Gypsy is the complete opposite of that. She stifled her development.
2: Yeah, she betrayed her. Yeah.
1: I mean, she stifled her development in every single conceivable way possible. From birth. And from birth. <laughs> yeah. From three months on, yeah, basically. Dee Dee was coming up with all sorts of ailments that she believed that Gypsy had and taking her to the doctor, getting a feeding tube inserted in. That was the first procedure that Gypsy said that she remembered because you can't go under anesthesia when you're getting a feeding tube put in. Yeah. And so you feel it. Yeah. The things that she did to her daughter. Yeah, I mean, that alone. That, that alone. <laughs> exactly. The things that she did to her daughter were unconscionable, but it's also like, it it felt especially sinister to me because she was supposed to be the one person in the world. If nobody else, yes. she was supposed to be the one person in the world as her parent that Gypsy could trust with her life. Yes, And instead she did the exact opposite. I think about that old adage. I'm sure you grew up hearing it all the time. Children should be seen and not heard. Yes. I, I understand that people are trying to get away from that now. It's something that I don't want to say.
2: Horrible adage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it just makes my blood run cold at the memory. Absolutely, But that's how many people I think think of their children to a certain degree, within certain bounds, I think many people think of their children as extensions of themselves. Yes. On some level. Maybe not only that, but on some level. And again, Dee Dee took that to the extreme. She basically, quote unquote, molded the perfect daughter for her while she was out in public playing the perfect mother. The perfect daughter somebody who's going to be endlessly obedient, who's going to cater to your every emotional impulse. But the thing is, is that like to cater to someone's emotional impulse implies that you have a choice. Gypsy didn't have a choice because Didi took that away. It's interesting that even though both of those roles were taken to a very grim extreme, from the outside, people perceived Didi as being a great mother. They perceived her as being this selfless person. And it really put Gypsy at a disadvantage The manipulation that she was enacting upon Gypsy, the deception that Gypsy was, I think, able to learn a little bit about manipulation and deception from her mother.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She would have to.
1: Yeah, she would have to. She kind of had to use those tools to free herself in a certain way. Yeah. It's even interesting that, like, the way that Dee Dee raised Gypsy to be the most submissive being, right? Mm -hmm. The most submissive being. It primed her to take up with Nicholas John. Yes,
3: I met Nick through a Christian dating website. Thought he was cute, so I checked him out, sent him a wink. He sent me one back.
2: And that's true because the type of relationship they had mirrored the one that she was already in. Yes. And when they go into the elements that are BDSM and all that, yeah. I want to say this specific BDSM relationship. And I'm not coming for the kink community. Please do not add us. But <laughs> we're not kink centric, right? Here. This specific relationship mirrored the one that she was already in, which was not a consenting and fun relationship. There were none of the rules or any of the guardrails that are that exist in the BDSM community. Exactly. But this was her real life, so it's not something. Surprising. This was her... Real life. And
1: then it makes so much sense then that even though, like you said, Gypsy was involved in the premeditated nature of her mother's murder, Gypsy didn't actually physically carry it out. Exactly. It makes perfect sense that Gypsy, possibly for emotional reasons, she couldn't do physical harm to her mother, let's say. Yeah. But it makes total sense that she would be able to convince somebody else to carry that out for her. Yes. I don't have any suspicion about Gypsy's motives for murdering her mother. Like it is plain as day why that's something that she would want to do. Yeah. But it was very interesting to see how much of the manipulation and the deception and the submission that Dee Dee taught Gypsy ultimately be the thing that killed her. Yeah.
4: Are you happy that your mom is not here to abuse you anymore? Yeah.
3: But at the same time, I'm not happy that said, you No, I didn't want that. I know it, it sounds strange to plan something and go through the steps to make it happen, and then, but at the same time, not want it to happen.
2: We also have to talk about the fact that there were multiple failures, systemic and personal Whew. failures, before we even get to the murder. Obviously, we have Dee Blanchard failing her daughter and failing her duties as a parent. Yeah. But the second one we have is her father. Mm. Her sister told me once, Rod, you know, she, uh, Gypsy can walk. And I asked Didi about her. She's like, well, well you know, with her, with her muscular dystrophy or with her disease, her, her muscles hurt sometimes. So sometimes she can walk when she's feeling okay, but it's, it's progressive. It's, it's going to get worse.
0: And uh, it wasn't long after that that they were, you know, they started moving further and further away. And... You know, there's nobody, nobody there to question question that anymore,
2: you know. It seems like maybe he could have done more. I kind of fell on the side. I am taking at his word that he did everything he could. What do you think,
1: Brittany? I 100% agree. I could see how, based upon what we're hearing from him, Mm -hmm. what we're hearing from Gypsy, what we're hearing from outsiders, from doctors, from Dee Dee's family, Dee Dee was not the kind of person that you, I think, would want to go head-to-head with, but she seems like she was a pretty strong-willed gal. Yeah. And that if she wanted to shut you out, she could shut you out. Yes. Because clearly she shut out the world from the abuse that she was enacting upon Gypsy. So that's that. I do question his assertion that he did everything that he could. Mm -hmm. Also, there's like some sort of weird connection to, like how little is expected, I think of fathers.
2: There you, you know? go.
1: <laughs> That's kind of in there, yeah. like. <laughs> but I think because again, going back to how people think and idealize about the role of mother, the idea that the mother is supposed to be there no matter what, hovering constantly, like that umbilical cord, that bond is never supposed to be broken. Yes. The expectations are that the mother is supposed to be hyper present, and so Didi's Dee hyper presence didn't raise red flags for a lot of people because that's what they expect of mothers.
2: It's funny, while you were talking, I immediately started thinking about our friend Lawrence.
1: <laughs> On Insecure. <laughs>
2: Another HBO property. Oh, what's wrong? You mad daddy a little late. Huh? You ready to go? I immediately started thinking about that relationship and how generally how people reflect relationships of fathers to children versus mothers to children. Mm -hmm. If everyone's saying like, look, you're just not there for your kids, you're not doing Mm -hmm. exactly what you were supposed to be doing anyway. Had you heard of Munchausen's By Proxy before this documentary?
1: I didn't really know all the words for it until I watched this film.
2: Yeah, I think the first time i had seen it was probably on some cable television show I was watching as a kid, some detective show. But watching them break it down, like what's actually happening, like them making her sick and her having these ailments. And when they show the medicine cabinet with all of these medications in there—
1: you say medicine cabinet, it's it's a linen closet yeah. in the bathroom. You know, like many bathrooms, they have, nah, not in New York, but they have <laughs> linen closets, you know, floor to ceiling. Yeah. I mean, it was stuffed with medications, every shelf.
2: Yeah. I mean, and this is a very small woman taking all of these drugs that, I mean, are obviously messing her up, her cognitive function or physical function, all of that. You know, it really brought into view what Munchausen is, you know, to be like, this is just, yeah, this isn't okay. Right.
1: It's such a tragedy to see how bureaucracy was exploited um, and taken advantage of by Didi when there are so many people who are genuinely trying to care for their children. Exactly. While Didi was able to exploit the brokenness of the system, so many other people are crushed by the brokenness of the system. Yeah. I left the documentary not with so many questions about what happened between Didi and Gypsy. That got very clear throughout the documentary. Yeah. But I really had a lot of questions about my house and my Proxy, which is why I'm really You know, excited to share with you all our conversation with Dr. Mary Sanders, who's a psychologist and expert on medical child abuse, because I got questions.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mary Sanders. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford Medical School.
2: Thank you so much for being with us. Can you explain what Munchausen syndrome by proxy is to someone who hasn't heard the term before and how common it is?
0: Certainly. Uh, Actually, there's two terms that are used quite a bit. Uh, The first one is medical child abuse, and that's when a child is being presented for unnecessary medical intervention to the point that it is considered abusive. Munchausen by proxy abuse refers to a situation of medical child abuse in which the child's symptoms are intentionally and deceptively being falsified. So a parent that uh, intentionally presents symptoms that are false, maybe a false history, medical history, maybe even inducing symptoms such as through poisoning or like smothering. And as far as how common it is, it, you know, it is considered rare. But really what we're finding more and more is that uh, Munchausen by proxy abuse is certainly not well discovered. There's a, a number of cases that are out there that we don't know about. Obviously, it is a deceptive form of abuse. And so it's underrecognized, I think, and also uh, underreported.
1: I'm wondering, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you hear about what Munchausen is?
0: Oh, there's so many misconceptions. Um, actually, I think the term is being used quite a bit for things that are certainly not Munchausen by proxy. I think that anytime there is a falsification, sometimes the, the term is used. And I think what's lost is the fact that this is intentional, deceptive abuse. So it's it's when the story doesn't fit the symptoms.
1: Mm, when the story doesn't fit the symptoms. And additionally, there is a very specific pattern of abuse in the form of unnecessary procedures or medications.
0: Exactly. If the parent is intentionally being deceptive, you know, especially in the case that we're seeing in the documentary with uh DD and Gypsy, and situations is, and when the child is colluding with the parent, it makes it even more difficult to identify that this is uh, intentional abuse.
1: What do you mean when you say collusion? Because when I hear that, I'm like, "Well, did Gypsy have any other choice? Mm. If someone's treating you that way since birth, at what point does it become collusion? Is it like depend on the child's age, what their knowledge of their condition is in private? What what connotes collusion?"
0: just to be clear i absolutely agree uh, i mean this child at starting seemingly at 3 months mm. was programmed to be a sick child and so this is the culture that she grew up in you know she wasn't allowed to even have an identity you know her identity was of a sick child Collusion in the sense that she went along with the story, but of course, looking at it, you, you can realize growing up in this kind of culture, she didn't have any other choice. So, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a choice on her part to collude. So we've definitely seen cases in which parents have coached their children to go along with this. I mean, there's so much footage of uh, Dee, uh, and of course she is dead, but we have so much footage because she was so successful in deceptively presenting Gypsy as a sick child.
3: I knew that I was different or my life was different from other kids, but people thought of us as, you know, the sweetest mother-daughter family ever. The best two people in the world.
0: And so you see what it looks like from the media, from the TV. You know, here's this mother and child holding hands. Um, How cute is that? And then, of course, we find out later that that was the way that she communicated to be quiet. She would squeeze her hand. I really like what the sheriff said that, you know, not everything is as it seems.
1: (laughs) That was definitely a phrase that caught our ears as well. You know, I'm glad you brought up some of Didi's specific behaviors. You know, we've been trying to wrap our minds around it. Like, how, how do you as a professional understand what Didi did? Like, where does the impulse to enact this kind of abuse come from?
0: You know, we, we have limited research, but there does appear to be some recurrent characteristics Perpetrators have been found to have personality disorders that indicate uh, possible attachment issues, um, some limited capacity for empathy, Mm. desire for excitement, difficulty taking responsibility for their behaviors. They may have had experiences in their past in which they received attention for being sick. And then as far as being able to abuse their child... What I have heard, again, from perpetrators is sort of the use of rationalization, this kind of convincing themselves that, you know, this is the best thing for my child. I'm getting a home. I'm, we're having these adventures. We're meeting celebrities. We're going to Disneyland. This, I'm, I'm providing a good life for my child. And I have heard that rationalization is a, is a way to sort of allow themselves to engage in the abusive behaviors.
2: That story in the documentary of Gypsy Rose and Dee. Dee how does that compare with other cases that you've covered?
0: You know, we've certainly seen cases in which older children have colluded. As a matter of fact, this was many years ago, so there had been another news program that had talked about a Munchausen by proxy case. And at the time, I had a child in the hospital that we thought might be a victim. And the next day, when I went on the unit, it was an eight-year-old boy, and he brought it up. He said, did you see the show? And I said, I did. What did you think of that? And he said, you know, I think that's happening in my home. Wow. Wow. And just by watching the documentary, he realized he wasn't alone. There was a name for this. And um, it happened to other people other than just him because he didn't know. And so, you know, he really felt empowered, I think, at that point to let us know that this was going on in his family. And he had colluded, of course, with the parent uh, similar to uh, Gypsy and D.D. Dee Dee. Have you seen a family go
1: from a really unhealthy Munchausen by proxy or child medical abuse situation to something that we might consider more average?
0: I have. Uh, And again, this was very few cases. It is, like I said, I think it takes a lot of strength for a parent to be able to acknowledge Mm. and take responsibility for their behaviors. But I have had those cases and I have seen families be able with a lot of work to move forward to provide a healthy household. Some of them agree for, you know, ongoing monitoring through child protective services and are able then to raise their children. It is rare, but I have seen it happen.
2: Where can listeners go if they want to find more resources to help others or if they fear themselves to be victims of a Munchausen by proxy?
0: The American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, they do have a website, uh, APSAC.org. And actually, our interdisciplinary group has written practice guidelines. They're free. You can get them from the website. I think that's the best starting place. So many times we've had people that have just wanted to know more. Maybe this is going on with my grandchild. How do I learn? We'll send in the practice guidelines and that kind of gets them going. Dr. Sanders, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Lee Carr is a two-time Emmy-nominated filmmaker. Since Mommy, Daddy, Darest*, her breakout film, she's directed several documentary projects, including the HBO fan favorites I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth Versus Michelle Carter, and At the Heart of Gold, Inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal.
1: So Aaron Lee Carr actually reached out to Gypsy in advance of our interview on HBO Docs Club, and Gypsy wrote this email back. This is from late January 2022. I still to this day give nothing but praise to the documentary, Mommy Dead and Theorist. Even after four years of it being released, I get letters of support from those who have watched it. I've even made a few romantic connections and countless friends due to the positive exposure the film brought me. And right here, Gypsy adds a little smiley face. Your film brought a humanity to my story, and I am grateful. Many hugs and best wishes to you. Hugs, Gypsy.
2: Here's our interview with Aaron Carr. So I think generally we've seen Gypsy, her entire life has been like a measure of control by others, including her being in prison. And we're told that they didn't allow her to see the documentary at all, like not in prison. But I understand her stepmom, Christy Blanchard, described it to her. Do you have a sense of her reaction?
4: I love Christy. I mean, Christy explained every single scene, what was said, what was going on. I mean, Gypsy could recite like whole scenes and asked about it. Wow. I think she'll get out. I think she'll actually see it. It's just about her figuring out, is she going to want to take part in telling her story when she's actually able to? Mm. And Mommy Dead and Dearest was that story, and it showed so much in the archive that we were able to get that it was really, really significant and all the police discovery. But I think it was very much a product of the crime as it was happening, and there's a lot of fallout since then. So take us back to the year
1: you started working on this. When, when was that?
4: I think I had the idea in 2015... I shot it in 2016 and I put it out in 2017. It was a really chaotic time in my life. Mm -hmm. My father had just died in 2015, uh, dealing with a lot of grief from that. Uh, I was also suffering from active alcohol addiction. And when it got presented to me that I could work on this and actually do it, I think I got sober like a month later. This movie is absolutely a reason for me to get sober and to stay sober because I could have never done anything held any emotional intelligence had i been drinking at the time. And so there's a lot going on in my life, but then to be able to really think about this young girl and what was happening with her and just having a really really small team doing it, it gave me a reason to get up in the morning, which i feel like Really, really grateful for. Like, people think it's like, oh, mommy, dead and dearest, you made that, da, da, da. It's as impactful for like me and my life that I got to like fly my freak flag, uh, in addition to the editor, Andrew Kaufman, and, and our producer, Andrew Rossi.
1: Hmm. It's so interesting. How do you think the emotional state that you were in in 2015 and coming out of 2015 like ended up affecting the way the story was
4: told? If I was speaking honestly, which I always try to do, it made me desperate. And it made me desperate that this was going to work. And sometimes when you have a safety net, you're not going to fully go for it. Mm. So I needed this to work for my money situation. I wasn't doing anything else at the time. You know, this was how I was going to earn a living. This was all I had. I Mm. put every second eon energy into it. And that's why it was, you know, in my version, successful for me. And then... Uh, working with my team and HBO, who really loved it like I did.
2: When did you know that this was a doc that you wanted to make? And how did you reach out to Gypsy?
4: So I read about Gypsy's case in, then at the time, known but not so known website now called Thought Catalog, and it was just going into the bare sort of details of what was going on in Springfield, Missouri, in this case of a young girl, or her name was actually Gypsy Rose. I had been able to work with HBO on thought crimes, which was fairly horrifying fair. And so trying to continue in this tradition of horror and psychological, but also understanding why humans do the things that they do. I reached out to Mike Stanfield, which is Gypsy's lawyer. And typically, as a documentary filmmaker, you don't reach out to the lawyer because they're just going to put the kibosh on it. But I started a dialogue with him. I talked to him. I met him in person. And I was looking last night in preparation for this interview at the things that I wrote to her and the things that she wrote to me. It's so different than the things that I would write now. And Gypsy actually called me today, but I was in the middle of a meeting. Mm. It, it was so friendly and genuine and trying to come from a place of trying to understand. But also, like I think I was losing sight that somebody was dead mm-hmm. uh, over the course of these actions. So we wrote letters back and forth. And then I flew to meet her in person. No camera, just a notebook for anybody listening to this that wants to make a documentary, even if you have to, you know, do the red eye to the place, the cheapest ticket, you will be more likely to get an interview if you show up and just try to like make inroads versus saying, I'm bringing the FS7 and da da da. Like it it really, in specific cases like this, it's baby steps.
1: You took real gingerly, like ginger steps to sort of like get in touch with Gypsy. Like how did you go about really building that foundation of trust with her and then eventually filming with her?
4: It's all about understanding who is important to this person in their life right now. And I don't want to come across as a transactional lunatic, but I knew that Christy was very important to Gypsy. I knew that Rod, her father, was very important to Gypsy. And when you're dealing with people who are in prison who do not have the ability to call you in and sort of talk things through, you need to have allies on their team that's also on your team. And so it was really putting a lot of time and energy into uh, really understanding Christy and Rod and explaining what was going on. And There were a lot of people after them. You know, I'm this, like, at the time, 27-year-old who's like, I'm working for HBO. And they're like, well, <laughs> let's see an actual paper that says that. <laughs> and then asking Gypsy questions about... Nothing that had to do with the murder. What are you dreaming about? What are the things that you wish you learned in school? What are you doing during the day? What are you thinking about? For a documentary filmmaker, it's pretty much your life to stay in contact with the subjects to make sure that they feel safe and secure.
2: Gypsy's story is very convincing. But you mentioned, even when Dee Dee would spin a yarn, that people believed it, mm-hmm. you know? And in the film, journalist Michelle Dean, she mentioned that Gypsy must have inherited some of her mother's expert manipulation tactics. If she did inherit these manipulation tactics, how much can we believe of what Gypsy says?
4: I felt it was very important to put in that we have to check ourselves. In the story of Gypsy because she is the surviving member of the story. And uh, sometimes I noticed there were inconsistencies in the way that she talked to me and the things that I, I saw in evidence. I feel ultimately like some guilt about that, but it was the right thing to do. And there was a lot of internal questions about why did it have to end up in murder? Why did Nicholas go to John, end up murdering Gypsy's mother? Like, had there been any other way? And I got messages being like, You have no idea what it is like to live in an abusive home like that. Hmm. You have no options. There is no way of leaving. You know, people are driven to violence for reasons. And so I've always had to put my skeptic hat on, but also my like human hat on. But also the documentary hat is somewhere off to the left. Just imagine me wearing a lot of ill-fitting hats.
1: It's interesting that you bring up some of the ethical concerns of making the film. Because something that I noticed watching is that there's some really detailed and graphic images, Dee's dead body, that are hard to watch. Can you walk us through the ethical and creative conversations that you had around showing those images?
4: Absolutely. So I needed to remind myself, the audience, and anybody interacting with the story at the top that somebody was dead. I was about to explain to you the reasons why this person died. But unless you see that scene and what happened and how violent it was, you are not going to be able to understand the nuance of the story. This was an action done in violence. I'm able to work with Andrew Kaufman, my editor, who has edited many projects for me. And I would say that we are rooted in being provocative. Mm. And I think that's something that my movies, if I if I don't seem like I'm tooting the old horn, but that I make provocative stances. I don't want to be gratuitous. I'm not going to sit and go back to that scene. And there were so many more photos that were there, um, and it just was like, okay, how do I do this and create this and create like a whiplash? There's a lot of being really uncomfortable in that movie, and then you get more, more uncomfortable, more uncomfortable, more uncomfortable, and you have to sit with how you feel about it.
2: Yeah. So if looking at looking at the images and understanding that there's a murder on one side, but then there's rampant abuse on the other it can almost create that there's one versus the other, which one's worse if you uh, put it on the scales and it comes down to the audience to decide, do you find yourself falling on a side when it comes to telling this story?
4: Interestingly enough, like, I've done a lot of research into stand-your-ground laws, and that defense only works for white men. Yeah. And specifically, domestic violence uh, victims, they're not allowed to kill their perpetrator, even if they're in the moment of doing that, or as we've seen, if you are Black and a person of color. And so, understanding that there was so much abuse that happened in the house, and then someone snapped— than the fact that it was premeditated. But it is a version of protecting yourself. In the criminal justice system, there's no room for that. For example, Nicholas Godijan got life in prison. Her sentence is incredibly different than Nicholas's. So I don't take a side. I live in the gray. I try to humanize and understand that's what I try to do in picking stories. How do I do this and add to the conversation while not being fleeced or taken in as a mark?
2: So speaking about the, the differences between different narrative mediums, what do you think that a documentary can do that a fictional story can't?
4: I mean, Gypsy Rose, in not uh, so long after the murder took place, there is a living interview forever about, about what she was thinking. when people think about this story, they think about her and what it was like. And I have the interview with her where in that moment in time, she's processing it. And I do not think there's a substitute for that.
1: I mean, there really isn't. I wonder, what are the big questions that you ask yourself when you're making a documentary? And how do you see your job as a filmmaker?
4: It's so weird because I'm like, I'm a journalist. I'm a phone therapist. I am a storyteller. I'm a network executive. I am a PhD student in sort of psychological abuse. I mean, PhD, maybe like a master's. We'll see. (laughs) I think it's like the most shape-shifting sort of thing and a really, really complicated job. It's really important for me to act with integrity when I reach out to people and keep my word on things. I'm only as strong as the team and I've been really careful and thoughtful to work with people who work as hard as I do. Always mentioning Andrew Kaufman's name because the editor is the architect of a documentary film. And anybody who says differently is, I think, taking too much credit. Mm. It's the director and it's the editor. And the director, I believe, is in service to the edit, in service to the story. I'm not dictating. It is a mutual relationship. That's something that has remained unclear that it's all about the director. It's really now all about the editor.
1: So my fiance is a documentary film editor, and he always says that the editor can only really work with what it is that the director makes sure to go out and get. Totally. And at the halfway point of the movie, I was stunned because you start by outlining all of the abuse that Gypsy has survived. And then turn to outlining how Gypsy and Nicholas Godejohn plotted Didi's Dee murder. How did you and the editor work that out? Like, was that turn something that you knew that you always wanted for the film?
4: I think when people are working on crime stories or any documentary, you have to release information in patterns. I tend to release things in seven minutes intervals so that the audience is like, oh my gosh, oh my God, then it's this. That exists. What's going on? Like, You know? Yeah. And uh, my favorite review I've ever gotten was about Mommy Dandaris. One, somebody said they needed to take a shower after watching it. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and then two, someone called it a Russian nesting doll of horror. That tracks.
2: That's a good description.
4: It just got unpacked and unpacked and unpacked. I was like, oh, I'll sign up for that. Like, yeah, that's what I meant to do. I've gotten to work with executives that talk to me a lot about deploying information at certain intervals. And so it's always a pretty conscious choice that I'm not going to give you the information up top and then have you deal with it. I always do it as like, you're learning it sort of in the pattern that I learned it.
2: Mm. Speaking of rushing nesting dolls of horror, I think you did a great job of reveal after reveal. And at the end, I definitely do feel emotionally raw, but I definitely fell on a side, which me and Brittany, of course, talk about in the rest of this episode. But I'm curious about you. What impact does this story have on you emotionally?
4: Is it okay if that's private? Absolutely. Yeah, I I opened up that it was a hard year, but it's also like I don't ever want it to seem like it's about me. Mm. It really was how she was processing it. I just will say that like I love therapy. I'm in a lot of therapy dealing with this stuff. I've now gotten a group therapist for our teams who deal with this subject matter because it can show up in your dreams and in your sort of inner thoughts and things like that. And Even you guys watching it and watching again and these things sort of sink into our subconscious.
2: So you talked a little bit about this already, about continuing your relationship with Gypsy. You mentioned that she called you while you were in a meeting. You're still regularly in touch with her.
4: We email through JPay, which is the prison system, sending messages, talking to her about my dog. I owe Gypsy a lot uh, and her family, specifically Rod and Christy. And it's just not something that I forget.
2: Do you think that you'll continue, like, having a relationship with her if, when she gets out of prison? Like, is this a friendship now, you would say?
4: I hope so. I mean, I hope to have a relationship with her when she gets out and getting to potentially, like, have her come to New York. I want her to have a full, good life. And she has been in prison for a long time, and she had to bear the real consequences of what she did. I'm interested if she ever wants to write anything or talk about her experience in a way now that she's had some years to process it. I think there's a lot more there.
2: What do you think her future looks like outside of prison?
4: I hope lots of dogs or a cat, understanding like trust and love and having somebody near you that's unconditional, reconnecting with other people in her life, spending time with her family, hopefully doing a little bit of writing, figuring out what her passion is, what her vocation is and taking like small steps towards these things. I think she's got a lot going for her and I I don't condone what happened, like being very clear What she did, she went to prison for it. I don't think it's demonstrative of her character, and I don't think she would ever do anything like that again. I think her rehabilitation and how much she can be rehabilitated is quite, quite high. And yeah, I think she'll do important things.
1: Let's get you guys up to speed on where things are since Mommy Dead and Dearest aired in 2017. So, as of now, Gypsy Blanchard has served more than half of her sentence at the Chillicothe Correctional Center in Missouri for the 2015 murder of her mother, Dee Dee. She was going to be eligible for parole in 2024, but she could be paroled as early
2: as December 2023 for good behavior. Wow, that is right around the corner. Yeah. You know what else? Recently, there's been a resurgence of Gypsy's story on TikTok. A girl spotted Dee Dee and Gypsy in the background of her family photos from her Disney trip. That is exactly the kind of content that pops on TikTok. I think that's why they made the app.
1: (laughs) And as far as Gypsy's life behind bars, she's been working on a book and has plans to make her own documentary upon her release. She's also been online dating while in prison. Yes, of course,
2: as one does. As one does.
1: I'm curious to see what she writes, because I imagine she's going to be processing a lot of grief
2: I feel like she has a lot to reflect on and I'm interested to read whatever she has to tell us Yeah, and I'm wondering what she has to say about her life with her mom now years later that she probably didn't understand at the time when the movie was made Yeah. so we've had our chat about the documentary we've talked to Dr. Sanders, we've talked to Aaron Lee Carr let's wrap up the episode, final thoughts so I think
1: what stays with me most about this film is everything in Gypsy's story ended with her incarcerated and serving time. And the buck kind of stopped with the justice system. It just goes to show just how much abuse can factor into the pipeline that many Americans have to prisons. Just a really sad story all around.
2: Yeah. Talking about failures, I would say all of the social services, the healthcare system, there were these failures that went along the way from the checks that are there to stop something like Munchausen's by proxy from happening to a person. Yeah. I feel like the interviews really clarified for me this idea of when murder is okay because erin lee carr talked about how white men are the most successful at using the stand your ground laws to their advantage in the judicial system but gypsy never could have argued that and expected to be exonerated for it you know they still had to plead her down so that's really sticking with me that's kind of my final thought there
1: That's all we got for today. Join us next time when we take a look at The Lady and the Dale, the docu-series exploring an audacious 1970s auto scam centered around a mysterious entrepreneur named Liz Carmichael. You can watch right now on HBO Max. Until then, I'm Ronald Young Jr. And I am Brittany Luce. And this has been HBO
2: Docs Club. Thanks for listening. HBO Docs Club is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Ronald Young Jr. And me, Brittany Luce.
1: Beyondria July is our lead producer, and our associate producer is Maria Robbins-Somerville.
2: Darby Maloney is our editor. Hannis Brown is our engineer and composer. John Asanti is our senior managing producer.
1: And our executive producers are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky.
2: What is the scene for you that made the movie?
4: In my very bad accent. Flush her ass down a toilet. That DD she evil. <laughs> That's the one though. Yeah it is. That's the one